I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Dignity, what a concept, believing we have power over our own lives and over our own future. Well, of course, we all know that there are powers in the United States that want us to believe we are powerless. They want us to accept our powerlessness. It seems that every election year, more and more of us tend to throw up our hands and believe we're never going to change anything. The idea of democracy, the people's voice, not only being heard, but actually exercising real political power, appears more and more like a fairy tale aimed at keeping people quiet and accepting their own real powerlessness. The party bosses, the big corporations, the moneyed forces behind the scenes are the ones with real electoral power. Our voices don't matter anyway. Why not just give up? be passive consumers in the place of the active citizens, which our founders intended. The easiest thing would be to give up. But according to our guest today, there is no reason to do so. As with all genuine reform, real lasting change always comes from the bottom up. Joshua A. Douglas explains his reasons for optimism in his new book, Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the future of voting. Thanks for being with us, Joshua Douglas. Thanks, Bert. Glad to be here. Josh Douglas is an expert on U.S. election law, and his new book presents an encouraging assessment of current efforts to make our voting system more accessible, reliable, and effective. And of course, it's all about bottom-up changes. Joshua Douglas is a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law. His most recent scholarship focuses on the constitutional right to vote. No, it's not a privilege, it's a right, with an emphasis on state constitutions as well as the various laws, rules, and judicial decisions impacting electoral administration. He's also written extensively on election law procedure. He's co-author of an election law casebook and a co-editor of Election Law Stories, which tells behind-the-scenes stories of the major cases in the field. In addition, his media commentaries have appeared in The New York Times, USA Today, CNN, Reuters, The Washington Post, Politico, The Atlantic, Huffington Post, and Slate, among other outlets. And he has been quoted in major newspapers such as the New York Times and the Washington Post. Well, again, thanks for being with us. You have written many scholarly books for academics. This is not one of them. Who is the target audience for this book, Vote for Us? Yeah, I purposely wrote this book for the general public, for anyone who's set up with our system and, as you said in the intro, kind of just wants to throw up their hands and think, well, the system is, uh, you know, to use the 
uh, the, the hated R word rigged against us. Um, it's it's a, hopefully a, a book that can provide some inspiration to those who do want to change our system uh, and don't recognize that there are already actually some great movements going on in places all over the country to do so. Well, as, as regular listeners to Keeping Democracy Alive know, I like to look at history for keys to where we are and to the future. What has worked? What has not? Discouraging voter participation has been us, with us for a very, very long time. The most blatant example, of course, is Jim Crow laws aimed at making African-Americans terrified for their lives if they dare to try to vote. But through persistent effort, black Americans finally won their right to safely participate in elections. It wasn't easy, that's for sure. And in what ways did that movement use multiple avenues and not give up because of the daunting big picture? Yeah, a lot of people look at something like the Voting Rights Act of 65 as the key component to uh, really making our system a lot more equal than it was. Um, I won't say that it's fully equal yet. No, for sure. And that was a top-down solution, right? That was the federal government passing a law that did have immense uh, impact. But the groundwork for that to happen really went on in localities, uh, mostly in the South. I mean, I like to think that the Voting Rights Act would not have been passed had it not been for the march on, in Selma. Uh, across the Edmund Pettus Bridge that really shined a light on some of the problems in the Jim Crow era type rules and and really forced the hand of President Lyndon Johnson to act. So what we see is local movements, local groundwork, grassroots efforts uh, start in some places, they start to spread, and then eventually there's a tipping point where it becomes a more of a nationwide push. And I think a lot of the voting reforms that we see now are at the beginning stages of that, where there's advocacy on the ground or there are local efforts that are being passed and implemented successfully in some areas that can then spread to others. And I'm reminded of uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, ideal uh, president was FDR. FDR met with A. Philip Randolph of the uh, almost entirely black Pullman Porters Union about ending segregation and, and uh, you know, having uh, fairness there. And A. Philip Randolph met with FDR when he was president. And, and the president said, I'm with you. I agree with you. I want to do it. Now go out there and make me do it. And that's the whole point. Starting exactly. at the bottom up. Johnson wouldn't have done it except for the pressure from the bottom. Well, and, and you know, and Johnson initially said the timing's not right either. He initially told oh, Martin Luther true. King Jr. that the timing wasn't right. Yeah. And yet he was forced to then do it, as you say, because of this groundswell of support that happened in communities among all populations. You know, and it wasn't just African Americans, right. but a lot of white Americans joined the cause as well to create what was a movement that had to be acted on at that time. Yeah, they can't resist. And, you know, people, it's so easy to give up, but there is, I mean, do people care about voting? I think they do. I mean, the, the powers that don't want us to vote know how important voting is. That's why they pass all these uh, efforts to uh, keep it down, to press down uh, students' votes and things like that. Well, another bit of, of history, of course, is voting rights for women. That was a big national change, resisted mightily 
by powers who did not want them to have any political power. Why were they so afraid of women having political power, and how did that change come about? That wasn't easy either. It wasn't easy, and you know, I think it was in part any time that we have expansions of the right to vote, the entrenched interests are afraid of losing power. You know, if we enfranchise this new group of people, are they going to vote against those who currently hold power? But I think the real interesting story about women's suffrage is, again, this local grassroots effort. You know, the push for women's suffrage uh, started well before the enactment of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in 1920. Um, And there were some places that did enfranchise women for certain elections. So women could vote in school board elections uh, in Kansas, for example. Georgia and Kentucky were among the first states to allow women to to have the right to vote well before the 19th Amendment. So you saw these pockets of movements where it was, you know, women themselves, along with supportive men, who understood that uh, our democracy should be more inclusive, that it was harmful to exclude a whole segment of the population, and uh, really worked on local grassroots efforts to drum up support, and then had some successes in local and state laws to enfranchise women, and that helped make the case for the ultimate passage of the 19th Amendment. And hopefully some of the women did vote out some of the people who were afraid of being voted out. That's just my personal opinion, you know, because if they couldn't uh, handle that, well, to heck with them. Now, as you may or may not know, I served seven terms in the New Hampshire State Senate, uh, you know, seven elections. And I can tell listeners it was an integral part of the Republican Party playbook to cut funding for public education every chance they could. And I was truly amazed when my colleagues on the right crushed an effort designed to promote civics education in our public schools. Teachers in local schools could enact it, you know, teach it any way they chose. The bill would not have told them how to do it, but just that they must teach civics education. Why would they be so opposed to civic education? I mean, it it shocked me, quite frankly. Why do you think it's okay for public school teachers to talk about politics in the classroom. And, and how can they be against civics education? That's just, I mean, so conservative. But uh, your take on that, please. Well, my guess is that the people who are opposed are not opposed to the concept of civics education in the abstract. And, you know, they probably are okay with teaching history or teaching checks and balances. They're afraid of teachers indoctrinating their students. That's a common complaint I hear, is that they feel fearful that teachers will insert politics too much into their classroom and become political talking heads instead of well, teachers. Um, Of course, the evidence doesn't bear this out. You know, first, if you're worried about a partisan skew, well, teachers are of all different political persuasions. Um, In fact, I think the latest survey I looked at suggested that the largest percentage of teachers just actually identified as independents. Um, But the other thing is that teachers are dedicated to Uh, fostering debate and actually teaching their students how to live in a society where we need civic discourse that doesn't fall into vitriol, that doesn't, you know, devolve into something that we see our politicians doing. You know, this is actually the way to, to, in many ways, to clean up our politics is 
to engage young people in these debates in a civil manner. Um, and teachers are not seeking to indoctrinate. There's, this is just a fear with, that's unfounded with no evidence. But unfortunately, it, it does drive the debate sometimes over civics education. Yeah, it does sometimes. And I remember my father being shocked that we weren't taught civics in school when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and, you know, I, I wonder, some people may think, civics? What's civics? Not everybody knows what it is. Maybe you can just give a, a short summary of, of what it is and why you think it's important with regard to participating as a citizen. Well, you know, the definition of civics actually, I think, can go many different ways. And some social studies that teachers I talk to for the book actually refer to it as teaching government as opposed to just civics. Um, sometimes people think of civics as kind of the boring memorization of checks and balances uh, of the three branches of government. Let's memorize part of the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, quite frankly, I understand why students might find that well, boring or at least not as interesting as otherwise, you know, they might have. But what I found is that there are a lot of teachers doing some really innovative things in their classrooms, which are referred to as action civics. And action civics is essentially project-based learning on real-world solutions. So the students look at a problem that's occurring in our society, uh, whether it's in their local community or, or more broadly, and they research the issue. They make sure that they present both sides, understand both sides. They debate it, and then they come up with a solution. And there are some great examples of classrooms that have engaged in this action civics uh, curriculum that have made actual real change in their local communities. So, you know, I, I, there's a trend right now for some states to try to beef up their civics education by, you know, making high school students uh, pass the the same exam that new citizens would have to pass to become U.S. citizens. And, you know, that's fine in the abstract, I guess. Um, you know, I'm not opposed to learning more about American history and having people be able to name the three branches of government. But much more powerful is this action civics model where teachers are engaging their students in real-world problems. That is what can sustain lifelong learning and lifelong civics participation. Wow, participation. What a concept. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're on keeping democracy alive. And, of course, participating in democracy is essential. We're talking with Joshua A. Douglas, whose new book is Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. And the cover has two voting booths, one blue, one red. You know, it's 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 important to participate, no matter if you're to the right or to the left, as long as uh, people participate. And your book shares many stories of cases where local people did make a difference. So let's take a look at some specific examples. Florida, for example, had disenfranchised about 1.7 million individuals, including 20%, 20% of the state's African-American population. And uh, to put this number in perspective, Donald Trump beat Clinton in Florida by just under 113,000 votes. And again, 1.7 million had been disenfranchised, not able to vote. What did activists using the name Second Chances do following the 2016 election? And in what ways were they successful? Well, they went to bat against this failed disenfranchisement law uh, in a positive way. 
they went into communities to talk to people about the importance of enfranchising felons. And I point to an individual named Desmond Mead, who I think is a real democracy champion, who is the catalyst behind this effort. Um, Desmond was, spent some time in jail. He's a former felon. Uh, he got out, and actually it took a while for him to clean up his life. He uh, was an alcoholic and was depressed, uh, almost committed suicide, he, he said. But then he saw the light, essentially, and, and really cleaned up his life and, and became a productive member of his society. Uh, he went to law school, even though he knew the state wouldn't allow him to sit for the bar exam because of his felony conviction, but he wanted to enrich himself, enrich his education. And after law school, he dedicated himself to this cause of reenfranchising felons. So you know, they started this organization and referred to the movement as Second Chances and went around to communities all over Florida and just told their stories. And that's one of the things that really struck me is the power of storytelling, the power of individuals saying, yes, I made a mistake. Yes, I was, uh, I made, you know, I was a felon. I spent time in jail. You know, many of these people had never even met the people they talked to. had never even met someone who uh, had spent time in jail before. And they said, but I'm a person. I'm a member of the yes. society. Why, after I've done my time, I've paid all of my debt back to society, why should I not be a member in the most important vital sense, which is participating in our democracy through voting? Uh, so they eventually got a ballot measure on the ballot in 2018 to change the state constitution. It actually required 60% passage uh, under the Florida's rules to get a new constitutional amendment to the state constitution. And they they gained the votes after a vigorous campaign of telling their stories. Uh, Florida voters passed this new law to reenfranchise uh, about 1.4 million of those former felons. That is seriously impressive. Florida is, uh, shall we say, a challenging political environment in so many ways. And uh, actually, uh, at a recent uh, CNN town hall, uh, one of the Oh, 50 or so Democratic candidates, Bernie Sanders, uh, was asked specifically, they, they tried to trap him and trip him up. They asked him, well, what about the Boston bomber, the Boston Marathon bomber? Should those people who are currently incarcerated be able to vote? And it took some, uh, shall we say, chutzpah for him to say, yes, they should still have the right to vote. And he mentioned because it starts a slippery slope. Who is to decide? I mean, how can you be so subjective and decide who gets to vote? But, you know, and, and you talked about somebody who's served time. And there's, to me, no question, somebody who's paid their debt to society absolutely uh, should be able to vote. I wonder if you could give us a little history of the felon disenfranchisement. I, I sense it comes out of blatant Jim Crow, Jim Crow anti-black suffrage. Who gains when people convicted of felonies lose their right to vote? A little history there, please. Well, that's absolutely right. Felon disenfranchisement laws, generally speaking, began in the 1880s and 1890s as part of Reconstruction and the backlash against Reconstruction as we had all of these newly enfranchised slaves. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were lots of measures to try to limit the franchise. So they had, you know, blatant poll taxes or literacy tests or other kinds of tests like, you know, can you tell me the number of bubbles in a bar of soap to be able to register? Um, and also <laughs> felon disenfranchisement rules. And of course, the felonies that applied were ones that 
African Americans tended to be convicted of yeah. more. So you see a kind of a rise in criminal laws that were largely targeted toward African Americans at the same time. There are some more recent uh, iterations of felon disenfranchisement laws, but they all point back to that racist history. Um, now, as, as you noted, the current push is really to reenfranchise people after they right. have served their time. Um, However, two states do allow prisoners to vote currently. Both Maine and Vermont let prisoners vote at, via absentee ballot from jail. And I don't know that anyone thinks democracy is broken down in those two states. So it was interesting for Bernie Sanders to say that. I think some of the other candidates equivocated. Yes, uh, at least course. one, um, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, said that he was not in support. Yeah. Um, but you know, my question is, can we look to the history of this? Can we look to the disproportionate impact on racial minorities uh, and ask, you know, if voting is the most essential aspect of citizenship, or when we, when someone commits a crime and they're convicted of a felony and sent to jail, are we stripping of them of their citizenship as well? Good point. And at least to me, I've, I've, one thinks the idea of, of putting people in jail is to protect society, first off, from dangerous people, but also to make these people who do have to serve time into better citizens. And, you know, that's a, a process, and, and to, uh, you know, make them seem less than human, uh, I personally, I don't think uh, that, that helps particularly. We need a lot of criminal justice reform. Uh, that's We're just talking about voting today. Now, you have very interesting examples, stories. Stories really work. There's no question about that. And as you ask in one of your chapter titles, what do taco trucks have to do with voter registration? Yeah, it's one of my favorite uh, questions, and I have a couple pictures in the book, and uh, probably my favorite picture is in that chapter. Maybe it's just because I love tacos so much. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in places that we think of as restrictive for voting rights, places like Texas, there's actually still some good news on the ground, and, and this gets to the taco truck example. Uh, in Houston, Texas, a group named Mi Familia Vota went to Latino-majority areas in the state and brought voter registration forms to talk to taco trucks there. These are areas that few politicians ever go to and no election officials reach out to and, of course, have low voter engagement. Um, yet this group decided to go into these communities and just make it easier to find the forms necessary to register to vote. Well, it was hugely popular. Um, in fact, on the voter registration deadline, taco truck owners were calling the Texas state director of Mi Familia Vota, a guy named Carlos Duarte, and saying, can you bring us more forms? So we have people who have never been touched by the political system before who now want to participate, uh, who want to register. They registered more people. And these things work, and I know this because turnout among Latino populations in Houston after they did this went up. So, you know, this is a great example of how grassroots efforts to make the voting process easier and more convenient can reach people who otherwise haven't been reached and actually make a difference in our electoral politics. Actually, this is a significant change from when the, uh, the founding of the United States, when it was felt by many of the founders who were wealthy white Christian men who felt many of them felt like you know only white male uh, 
property owners should be able to vote because only they have a stake in the system. I think it's recognized that it's changed a lot since then, but I, I get the sense a lot of, well, some people on the kind of far right still feel that way. They don't want people of color voting, for sure. They want, you know, what's the... Well, what, that's, that's probably right. Although, you know, for me, this is not about politics. So I don't really care who wins politically from the changes that I talk about. For me, let's get everyone participating. Let's get every eligible person and let's make more of them eligible yeah. uh, who should be eligible in our political society. And let's let the best ideas and the best candidates win and not the election rules. You know, too often election rules do dictate uh, our electoral outcomes, and that yeah. just simply shouldn't be the case. I couldn't agree with you more. And one of your stories uh, is about a Republican, a baseball-loving Republican, Scott Doyle from Larimer County, Larimer, I hope I pronounced that right, Larimer County, Colorado. And and he had a quest to make it easier for people to vote. A, a baseball-loving Republican, Scott Doyle. What's his story? Yeah, he's a great guy to talk to. He's now retired. Uh, he was an engineer by trade for his career, and he uh, decided to enter public service towards the end of his career and join the county clerk's office in Larimer County, Colorado, really just to use his engineering expertise. And during the 20, uh, excuse me, 2000 presidential election, he noticed something that really bothered him. Uh, some voters were turned away from the polls and couldn't vote. And the reason was that they had gone to what they thought was their correct precinct towards the end of the day. It turns out it was the wrong precinct. And so they were turned away and said, you, know, you can't vote here. They tried to go to what was their correct precinct, um, but the polling hours had closed. They went to the county courthouse thinking, well, you know, maybe we could get some order or something, but obviously that didn't work. And, you know, Scott Doyle said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And he thought about how he can go food shopping uh, and go to any store, no matter where he is, and essentially get the same thing. And he said, why can't voting be similar? So he went home one night, sat down with a pencil and paper and started to map out different models of voting and came up with a system called vote centers. And in a vote center model, instead of having to go to a home-based precinct on election day, you can visit any vote center in the county. Now, they're all connected electronically so that once you check into one place, you can't go vote in the other place. And the ballot that gets, gets printed is the ballot for your home area. Uh, but this makes voting so much more convenient, right? Because if you're closer to uh, work, you're closer to school, you can go to the vote center that's closest to you. It also reduces costs because the county has to have fewer polling stations and fewer poll workers and fewer machines. Um, so it's really a win-win that the voters love and increases turnout. And again, we see this, this local movement start to spread. So he started it in Larimer County, Colorado. Some other counties in Colorado took notice because the voter turnout went up and voters were more engaged and it reduced costs. So they started to adopt it. And now you have it in a handful of states. The latest I just saw, actually, we were talking about Houston. Uh, Houston just said that they uh, would move to the vote center model. And I believe I just saw that Kansas uh, just passed a law that allows their counties to move to the vote center model if they want. Fascinating. I, and I'm guessing there must be some way, I mean, all this stuff is replicable. Is there some website that people can go to, like if they're in various uh, states across the country to see, uh, hey, what's a vote center? How can I replicate that? 
Yeah, the Larimer County Clerk's Office has some good resources because they were the first ones to do it. And um, Scott Doyle actually traveled around to some other places. Uh, yeah, I remember he went to Indiana. He was actually named the honorary Indiana Secretary of State for a day yeah. to uh, award him for his services as several counties in Indiana adopted the model. Um, so, But I think the Larimer County, Colorado, it's like, I mean, that's where I first initially uh gained some insights and research on the method as I was researching for this book. It must have been interesting doing the research. I mean, you have this huge, huge country of like, what, 300 and some million people now? And uh, how did you do it? I'm just curious. It was really interesting. Um, some of these reforms I'd never even heard of, like the vote center model, I actually hadn't heard of before I started researching the book and just looking for how is voting happening in different parts of the country and uh, what may- ways make sense. Um, and actually, I first found a, a county in New Mexico that was using the vote center, and I contacted them, and they told me it was, they actually had taken the model from Larimer County, Colorado, so I contacted the county clerk there, uh, who pointed me to Scott Doyle, who was retired uh, at the time, and, and he was a delight to speak with. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot of you know sort of chasing down leads after people told me inspiring stories about how voting is me- being made better in their areas, and then, you know, either um, going to places and meeting with people or getting them on the phone and just talking about what led them to engage in these efforts and why the reforms actually work. Uh, You know, the other thing I'll say is that every time I got done with one of these interviews, I rushed back to my computer to start writing more. I was so inspired by some of the great hard work that's happening all over the country that I was eager to to put that down on paper and, and tell their stories. Yeah, it's it's an interesting story. I do think a lot of people feel like, hey, you know, we've kind of lost control of a lot of this country. You know, the uh, billionaires and, you know, the people who spend hundreds of millions of dollars to elect their candidates. What about us? This is supposed to be a democracy, a Republican form of government, Republic of the people. And people do seem to care about that. And And, you know, one thing I wonder about... There's been, of course, a lot of concern about uh, machines messing up. I've heard we've all probably heard stories in the past about uh, absentee ballots being dumped in dumpsters and things like that. Uh, but it's a very kind of old-fashioned system, and you know, paper ballots seem to be a good thing because then they're they're trackable. But a little bit of the history of of voting on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. Working people have to work. It's really difficult for them to vote, as you were pointing out. There's talk of efforts to make voting day a legal holiday. Your thoughts on that? And what about, you know, this is the age of electronics. I mean, we all have uh, iPhones in our pockets. How can that be implemented without, uh, you know, being too concerned about uh, fraudulent uh, voting? Sure. Well, there's a lot to tackle there, obviously, yes. uh, with respect to both when we, we vote and how we vote. So, you know, you mentioned you like to talk about history. Tuesday is in November is chosen essentially because it was after the harvest season, and Sunday was a religious day, and you needed Monday to travel to your, the county clerk's seat, and so that's why it was Tuesday. Um, it's sort of an anomaly from our agrarian history where you needed to work around both the harvest and Sunday being religious and Monday needing to be a travel day. Um, 
you know, now a lot of places have expanded the ability for voting. A lot of places have early voting. You know, the studies on early voting actually are somewhat surprising. Uh, people think it would improve turnout, but it seems as though early voting actually doesn't improve turnout a ton. There's maybe a small uh, effect. Instead, it really just time displaces when people vote. That is, those who go to vote early would have voted on election day anyways, uh, if they, that was their requirement. But different models of early voting actually can really work. So I talk in the book about universal vote by mail, also known as vote at home, uh-huh. where the state sends you a ballot, sends every voter automatically a ballot, whether they requested it or not. So it's not like absentee balloting. And, you know, this really works because it's so much more convenient. You have the time to sit down and research the candidates, research the issues, so it produces a better informed electorate. And turnout in the places that do it, uh, like Oregon, like Washington, like Colorado, that actually have a hybrid vote center and vote-by-mail system, oh. uh, like every county but one in Utah, they, the voters love it and turnout goes up. So that's kind of like early voting, but it actually is better because everyone's voting on the same mechanism, you know, you, and you can fill out your ballot, you either drop it off a secure, at a secure drop box or mail it in, um, and this improves turnout. Now you asked about paper ballots, and I do think that in this day and age, we still need a paper backup uh, for a variety of reasons, both for verification purposes, uh, for recounts to help root out uh, electoral fraud. Um, That said, there are some pilot studies happening. So a couple counties in West Virginia allowed military and overseas voters to vote via an app using blockchain technology uh, this past election. And so it was a small uh, system, but it seemed to work pretty well. I'm not convinced that this is the wave of the future for our elections, but I think it's an interesting example of how you know we're still looking for innovations, all while still needing to vote via paper ballot as really the most secure and, and most verifiable way to do it. Yeah, it does seem we need to make it secure and verifiable so that people people can know. And making it easy seems like a good thing. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about keeping democracy alive, uh, voting, making it uh, easier and more people participating in voting. The book is called Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. Our guest is its author, Joshua Douglas. Now, what about voting by mail? Why is voting by mail the exception rather than the rule, especially since the evidence points to it being politically neutral? And I know, you know, I people, uh, absentee ballots, people like them. You know, it gives them a little bit more time to look at it and, you know, they're at home. But but why why is voting by mail the exception rather than the rule? Well, I think it's in part because we've gotten to the system where we visit our precincts on Election Day, you know, for decades. Uh, in fact, you know, well back uh, before the introduction of newer machines and uh, the modern voting system, uh, the state didn't even print the ballots. Uh, political parties did, and they'd print them in kind of bright colors, and then this would lead to a lot of vote buying because you could pay someone to to vote using your party ticket, you'd walk to the polls and they could see you with the color your colored ballot so they'd drop it in the box and that way they know that you know you you engaged in the scheme and voted the way you're supposed to do. So after that, uh, you know, early in the eighteen nineties, early nineteen hundreds, 
there's the adoption of what's known as the Australia ballot, uh, where the state prints the ballot, and it's a secret ballot. And since then, we've had this notion of going to the polling place on Election Day. It's this idealized, you know, sort of a cool fall day as we walk with our neighbors and feel the crunch of the leaves in the autumn going to our polling place. And in that sort of a system, absentee balloting has been the exception. So in many ways, I think for a lot of these reforms, we have to flip the narrative and think about, you know, even though we've done this for a hundred or more years, does that make it right? And does that make it make sense? Um, there's also a fear, I think, among some people that if you expand absentee balloting, that could increase the potential for voter fraud. The opposite is actually true. With only some people voting via the mail using absentee ballots and everyone else going in person, there's less oversight on the absentee balloting system because you're managing essentially dual election systems at once. If you have everyone shift to a vote-by-mail system, uh, a vote-by-mail ballot, and everyone automatically receives it without having a request, then you can have better oversight because you know you know if your ballot came and your neighbors didn't. Uh, or vice versa. And so then, you know, if your ballot didn't come, you can contact the election officials. Also, the states that do this uh, train their election officials on signature matches. So right now, poll workers or election officials without training will match signatures. Um, but in states like Oregon, they bring in experts, forensic experts on handwriting to train election officials as to doing signature matches. So this can actually reduce the fraud. So, you know, I think the ultimate answer to your question is there's just a lot of entrenchment about, uh, or, or inertia sure. about the way we voted. And I think we need to open our, our mindsets as to what the possibilities are, looking at the ways that some other places are doing it. Well, I wonder about costs. I mean, it costs money to, you know, the Secretary of State's office, uh, you know, has to print the ballots. They got to pay people to collect the ballots. I wonder if there's a comparison if, you know, people could argue, well, voting by mail would cost a lot more money. What do we know about that? Well, it might cost a little bit more at the outset, uh, at the the initial outlay of the infrastructure required. But actually, the long-term costs would would lead to cost savings. And that's because you don't need to pay poll workers. You don't need to have polling stations. You don't need to update voting machines. Um, And so actually, costs can go down in a vote-at-home system because of the you know the savings you get year after year without having to update that in-person mechanism. What about uh, voter ID? There's been a, a big push for that. Uh, 34 states, including your home state of Kentucky, require voters to show ID. Is is there a problem with that? I mean, some people say, well, you got to show ID to do all these other things. Wh- who gets left out? What what would people say? What would you say to someone who maintains that excluding some people, even lots of people, is worth the price of preventing voter fraud at the polls? What about this voter ID? Well, I have several responses. You know, first, voter ID laws come in many different shapes and sizes, so we have to talk about the severity of the law and what it requires. You know, Kentucky's actually is a fairly lenient voter ID requirement because you can show certain things, even your credit card without a picture can suffice. But in a lot of other states, they require a photo identification that's valid, that's not expired, although some places say your student ID, even by issued by uh, the state university doesn't count. Uh, In Texas, the student ID from the University of Texas doesn't count, but one's gun license does. Um, 
And so the first question is, what kind of idea are we talking about? The next question is, what are the numbers on people who are disenfranchised? And what we see that disenfranchised because they don't have the type of ID that would suffice under the law. And what we see is that it has a disproportionate effect on racial minorities, on the elderly, on the poor, and on students. Um, These populations just don't have a need to have an ID. Uh, You know, think of someone who's living in a city, relying on public transportation, working two jobs. You know, that person just never has a need for a photo identification in his or her daily life. The the response to, well, you know, I I need my ID for all sorts of things. The reality is you don't. You know, our society has workarounds for so many different things. Even boarding a plane, if you show up, uh, there's a workaround. You might be subject to additional scrutiny and security. Um, We don't require an ID for all these things that many people say that we do. And then the final point is, why should we have an ID? requirements, a strict photo identification requirement? The answer is to prevent voter fraud, as you noted. Well, let's look at the evidence. What kind of voter fraud would a photo identification law prevent? The only kind of fraud would be in-person impersonation, someone showing up to the polls and pretending to be someone they're not. And we know that this doesn't happen to any measurable extent, certainly not to the kind that would throw an election. And really, only instances are extremely isolated. Uh, You know, one one of my colleagues, an election law professor, uh, did a study of about 1 billion ballots cast over 12 years (laughs) and found only 31 possible instances of in-person impersonation. And then on further examination, at least half of them were honest mistakes. So where's the evidence of the fraud? You have zero. You have zero integrity benefit from a strict photo identification requirement, and yet you do have a disenfranchising effect from these laws. I'm sure that's just purely coincidence, disenfranchising older people, younger people, poor. Got to be just purely coincidence, of course. Well, yeah, I mean, of course not, right? Uh, those who are oh, uh, tend to pass these laws have a political motivation in mind, so, which, again, to me, yeah. is uh, is fatal on its face in that, you know, we shouldn't be passing election rules with the goal of changing the electorate to help those in power win in future elections. Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that. Now, back in 1972, we liberals thought it was a terrific idea to lower the voting age from 21 18. We assumed more young people would vote. Now, since then, numbers have been pretty disappointing. Young people have not participated in great numbers. But I sense that may have changed in 2016 or 2018. What do we know about young people voting? Why haven't they voted? And why? what's happened in 2018? Well, you know, the numbers uh, suggest that there was was more voter engagement uh, among young people, especially in 2018, after the Parkland shooting. But uh, the numbers didn't go up a ton, honestly, uh, and that is disappointing. Um, we do need to do better. You know, 18 to 29 year olds have the lowest turnout rates. Um, I think that's in part for a handful of reasons. Uh, 18 is kind of a strange time, actually, to start the voting habit because people are moving out of the home, they're entering the workforce or going to school. Uh, we make them register ahead of time in some states up to 30 days before the election uh, when many people are not even paying close attention yet. Uh, Then you have to jump through the hoops of asking for an absentee ballot, receiving it, filling it out, getting it witnessed in some states. There's a lot of hurdles uh, to the voting process. In addition to this notion of, you know, well, 
will my vote even make a difference in, in voter apathy? Um, 18 is, I think, not the optimal time to start the voting habit, um, at least for some elections. And, you know, one thing we do know is that one of the biggest predictors of whether someone's going to vote is if they voted previously. Voting is habit-forming, and so is non-voting. And studies show that if you miss the first election when you're an eligible voter, you're less likely to become a habitual voter later on in life. Uh, And so if we think about different ways to engage people to make them habitual voters earlier on in their lives, then I think we could have a significant impact on turnout for years to come. The number 16 comes up now, of course. There's a lot of talk these days about lowering the age from 18 to 16. What do you say to people who insist, oh, high school students are not mature enough to vote? What are the upsides of allowing 16-year-olds to vote? And why are young adults more likely to vote, at, well, you already answered, if they cast their first vote at, at 16 because uh, they become habitual? But what about that? And you actually mentioned a story about Ben Miller, a 16-year-old high school junior um, who registered to vote and cast his ballot. Talk about that, if you would, please, and the whole idea of voting at 16. Is that not too young? No, it's not too young, um, at least for local elections, which is what Ben Miller did in Tacoma Park, Maryland. In 2013, Tacoma Park decided to lower the voting age to 16 for local elections, and it was really thanks to the advocacy of an innovative uh, city council member named Tim Mail and a bunch of youths who talked about the importance of political participation. Now, I'll take on the, the common objection that you raised, because this is one I hear all the time, although they're not mature enough to vote. Uh, for those who have that knee-jerk reaction, I'd ask you to look at the studies of cognitive brain development, which is what I did. Because, um, you know, I, this is another one of these reforms that I'd heard about, uh, was kind of surprised, didn't know that it was happening, and then decided to research more uh, before I became an advocate for it. And what the psychologists say is that Uh, simplified, there's essentially two kinds of brain development or cognitive actions. Uh, They refer to it as hot cognition and cold cognition. And hot cognition is impulse control, peer pressure situations, heat of the moment where you're making a snap decision. And the psychologists say that brains aren't really developed for hot cognition until at least age 21 and maybe not even 24 or 25. But cold cognition are, is slower decision-making. It's reasoned judgment. It's not heat of the moment. It's not subject to peer pressure right then. And the psychologists say that brains are fully developed for cold cognition at age 16. So if we want to peg our voting process to when someone is actually mature enough to vote, 16 makes a lot more sense. 18 is kind of arbitrary, actually. You know, at the founding of our country, the voting age was 21, and that was stolen from British common law. Uh, And the British common law was 21 because back in medieval times, that was the age at which people could wear, physically wear a suit of armor, and so were thought worthy of adulthood. Um, And, you know, we just, you know, we took that when we founded our country, which is fine. And then, as you noted, we lowered the voting age to 18 after the Vietnam War. Um, But that took essentially a 30-year sustained effort. You saw some states uh, lowering the voting age prior to the adoption of the 26th Amendment. Um, 16 makes a lot more sense if we talk about when people are actually mature enough uh, 
brain developed wise. You know, of course, everyone can point to a 16-year-old that is immature. Everyone can also point to an 18-year-old or a 28-year-old who is the same way. Um, and yet we can also point to 16-year-olds like the Parkland students who are extremely mature. Add that to the fact that we know where 16-year-olds are in high school, right? And in fact, the age of compulsory education in most states is either 16 or 17. So we can get them registered. We can impart civics education like we talked about earlier uh, and, and get them to the, essentially to understand the importance of uh, voter participation, then we can create a whole new generation of engaged voters. Oh, that sounds really good. I can think of uh, people who were quite a bit older than that who I would think are not particularly mature. There's one 73-year-old sort of orange guy, but that's just my opinion. Uh, if Just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are uh, keeping democracy alive with your help. Our guest today is the author of a new book. Uh, his name is uh, Joshua A. Douglas. The new book is Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. Very specific local ways to do it. Now, one thing that I think <clears throat> attracts a lot of people, I mean, they don't like to choose between, you know, column A and column B. In Maine recently, they instituted ranked choice voting. There's quite a buzz around that idea. Your thoughts? Would it increase voter turnout? Would it enhance democracy? Ranked choice voting. Not everybody's familiar with that. It would. And so in a ranked choice voting system, instead of having to vote for one candidate among many, you can rank order your preferences. You can say, I like this candidate best, but that candidate second if, if my first choice doesn't get in. Um, this opens up opportunities for people to... to uh, explain and profess their preferences. Right? Everyone has preferences, whether it's favorite ice cream flavors or beer or political candidates. And often, you know, instead of having to vote for the, what seems like the lesser of two evils, you can vote your choices, and the ranked choice voting system takes those preferences into account. So what does it do to our elections? You know, when it started, actually, we used to use ranked choice voting. A bunch of places used to use it decades ago. Really? The modern iteration of it started in 2002 in San Francisco, uh, thanks in part to a guy named Stephen Hill, who would go around to bars at night and say, let's all rank our favorite beers to demonstrate the, the power and ability to use ranked choice voting, and then spread to places like Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. As you noted, Maine just adopted it statewide and used it statewide, although it was adopted in Portland, Maine, before uh, the state used it for its congressional elections. And, and what does it do? Well, it makes voters feel more empowered. Yes. It actually improves the tenor of elections because candidates are less likely to go negative. You know, if yeah. you, you know, you want the first choice support among a group of voters, but if you know you're not going to get it because they support someone else, you at least want their second choice vote because that might make a difference in the end. So you're not going to go to your opponent's uh, voters and sling mud. Uh, and so this actually improves the, the tenor of campaigns and makes them more positive. And it reduces voter apathy because people feel like their vote actually does matter. It feels like they can really make a difference um, because they're not subject to just one choice uh, among many that they might like. You know, we talk about the, the current political system. You know, the Democratic Party's got a, a presidential primary, a uh, handful of presidential primaries all around the country coming up with, what, 18, 19 candidates? Yeah. Imagine the ability to make ah, preferences true. among those if you're a Democrat as opposed to having to select only one. I think that would make it a lot more fun. And therefore, you know, people like to have fun. So it would encourage more voting. One, one of your stories is about uh, Molly McGrath, a former Miss Wisconsin. 
she engaged in all kinds of creative efforts to improve uh, uh, voter participation. I wonder if you could tell us about some of her efforts. Yeah, so this goes back to the voter ID question. And, you know, we talked about the downsides of strict photo ID laws and the disenfranchising effect that they can have. But, you know, the reality is, is that voter ID laws are probably here to stay. Um, they have support among the public because, you know, most people think, well, I have an ID in my wallet. What's the big deal? Um, so what Molly McGrath did in Wisconsin was say, you know, let's figure out a way to make photo identification requirements less disenfranchising by putting IDs into the hands of people who don't already have them. So she would go to the University of Wisconsin and set up uh, tables there. She would go to farmers markets. She would go to community centers. Uh, she was working with a group called Vote Riders, which uh, has its mission to uh, help people navigate photo identification laws. And, you know, Molly McGrath and her volunteers would drive people to the DMV, pay for underlying uh, documentation like a birth certificate they might need, really kind of one by one enfranchise people by ensuring they had the right form of identification that Wisconsin law required. And uh, she has some amazing stories uh, about people who otherwise wouldn't have been able to vote, who she helped. Um, and in, in addition to her, I talk about another woman named Kat Calvin and her group Spread the Vote, uh, which is working on also putting IDs into people's hands. And uh, Spread the Vote is really focused on marginalized communities in certain cities, places like you know Memphis, Tennessee. They had uh, made a big splash there recently, among other places. Um, this is a kind of positive spin we can put on laws that otherwise have the effect of voter suppression. You know, we can get into communities and make sure that people aren't disenfranchised, and that can actually have an increased uh, effect on voter turnout as well. Uh, I, I, I like that. I, more democracy, not less. I've been saying for years and years. And, uh, you know, of course, we started talking about money in politics. And in the aftermath of the dreadful Citizens United Supreme Court decision, campaign finance reform is attracting a lot of activist energy. I'm not sure about progress of that, but you may have some examples of municipalities using clean elections to combat the influence of money on elections. That sounds hopeful. Yeah, there's a handful of places that have adopted ethics rules, clean elections, ethics rules, disclosure rules on the money being spent in their local elections, and even public financing. And, you know, we talked about Maine before, but Maine is actually one of the best examples of a public financing system that works. It was passed by the voters uh, thanks to the grassroots efforts of organizations like the League of Women Voters and people who volunteered uh, for them. I talk about a stay-at-home mom named Allison Smith who became a prime spokesperson for the effort. This works, you know, where people can opt in to obtaining public financing, a certain amount of money for their campaign, uh, and then subject themselves to certain restrictions about the kinds of outside money they can take and uh, and the disclosure they will provide. Um, and this allows people who otherwise wouldn't have entered politics be part of our system. They, you know, people who are, you know, restaurant workers and servers as a, as a career or school teachers who otherwise don't have wealthy interests or wealthy background have entered the main legislature. And then when they're considering bills, they're no longer tied to the lobbyists that represent wealthy interests because they don't have to worry about the money for the re-election. They know they can rely on the clean elections money from the state. And then there are even more innovative ways to, to do this. So Seattle has this great system called democracy vouchers, 
where every eligible voter in the state automatically receives four $25 vouchers they can give to candidates who have opted into public financing and have agreed not to take any outside money. And so in addition to campaigning for votes, you can campaign for democracy vouchers because the amount of money you'll have to spend on your campaign is dependent on the number of vouchers that you can collect. And an individual can give all four to one person or spread them out. Uh, Once again, this reduces the influence of so-called big money or dark money in the system and makes it uh, opens the, the political process up to many more people. And again, historically, you know, the United States uh, fought a war of independence because we wanted self-government. We wanted a Republican form of government. There are still those who are trying to force, you know, an, uh, a plutocracy on us. That's the big money uh, owning uh, uh, government and, and having control over, you know, us peons who think we might be able to participate in it. I think there's there's the tide seems to be turning. Maybe I'm crazy optimist, but what what makes you optimistic about our voting rights for the future? I'm optimistic by these stories that I learned and I, I recount in the book. I mean, there are so many amazing people who it was just a joy to learn about them, to spend some time with them, because they're proving that change is possible. So, you know, we talked about the campaign finance system. You know, yes, there's a lot to lament. Uh, Supreme Court rulings have not been favorable to uh, the cause of campaign finance reform. And yet places like Maine and places like Seattle and others that have adopted these sorts of ethics and, and disclosure and, and public financing reforms show that it actually works. And if we talk more broadly, you know, all aspects of our voting process, from who's eligible to the voter registration process to election day itself to these more structural changes like ranked choice voting or redistricting reform or campaign finance reform or improving civics education, all these are already working in various places around the country, and that gives me a lot of hope. Say, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Fascinating. There's, you know, if you're interested, and I think most people are, in improving and enhancing actual democracy, there's a lot of information in there, helpful information, uh, sort of a playbook in here. It's called Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. Joshua Douglas, and it's put up by Prometheus Books. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Very educational, and it's nice to be optimistic. Bert, thank you. I appreciate it. It's not going to be easy, that's for sure.